Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week James Bradley, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite authors on subjects related to war and Asia. His new book is called The China Mirage, The Hidden History of American Disaster in Asia, which I read because I so greatly enjoyed a previous book of his called The Imperial Cruise. James Bradley, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me, David. Uh, Thanks for coming on. This was a a remarkable book, The China Mirage, that I highly recommend to everyone. Uh, And I think one of the the central focuses of the book was on the the China lobby, the the idea that there was a, a, a lobby lobbying the U.S. government and the U.S. public on behalf of, of China prior to World War II and, and greatly influencing U.S. behavior. Can you describe that lobby for people who have no idea what I'm talking about? The Song family were the Rockefellers of China. The Songs were the richest family in China. The Song family was educated in the United States at Harvard, Wesley, Wesleyan University, and Wellesley University. Three of the Song family members, two girls, Ai uh, Ling and Mei Ling, and, and a boy, TV Song, spent uh, a combined three decades in the United States, and they understood the China Mirage. The China Mirage is the idea in the American mind that China is going to change, and it'll become more westernized, Americanized, and hopefully Christianized. The China Mirage still exists in American minds today. We look at those commies in Beijing, we're wondering when they're going to fail and when democracy is going to bloom in China. Never happened, never will. But the Song family understood that mirage, and they took advantage of it. They got money from the United States government, aid to China, and took, the, took some of that money and used it with uh, propaganda efforts in the United States to convince Americans of their cause. One of the family members you mentioned was also married to someone quite significant in China. Right. Uh, the oldest sister, Ai Ling, was the boss of the Song family. And she called in Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, who was in a power struggle with Mao Zedong in 1930. And she said, listen, we will ally with you, Chiang Kai-shek, against Mao Zedong under four conditions. Number one, my husband becomes your prime minister. Number two, my brother, TV Song, becomes your treasury minister. Number three, you marry my younger sister, Mei Ling Song. And number four, you become a Christian. They knew that by making Chiang Kai-shek a Christian, married to a Christian, uh, this would play well in the United States and get a lot of aid. We eventually gave Chiang Kai-shek more money than we spent on the atom bomb. They used some uh, American lobbyists, uh, people named Frank Price and Henry Price. Uh, Who were these people, and and what did they do? Frank and Henry Price were Presbyterian missionaries uh, to China, and they used these two brothers to found a committee called the American Committee for Non-Participation in Japanese Aggression. It was a tongue twister, but what they wanted to do was cut Japan's oil the Japanese military was in China. We were supplying 80% of Japan's oil. We were supplying Japan the steel to make the bomb. Chiang Kai-shek and the Song family set up this American committee two blocks down from the New York Public Library in Manhattan, 
it had a uh, an American front. It was run by missionaries, but it was actually paid for by the China lobby to convince America to cut off Japan's oil. And they recruited quite a handful of of important people uh, in and out of the revolving door of government, including Henry Stimson, a former Secretary of State and future Secretary of War, to to actually work for China, right? Right. Henry Stimson was the front man of, of this American committee. And he, you know, that was the biggest name in foreign policy, Henry Stimson. He was called the first wise man. And he was fronting for this China lobby organization that, according to the Gallup poll, con- eventually convinced 75% of Americans that we could cut Japan's oil with no fear of blowback. There were also officials actually currently employed, not out the revolving door. Uh, you mentioned uh, Lachlan Curry and Tommy Corcoran. Uh, who were these people? Lachlan Curry was the first economics advisor to a president, to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Roosevelt chose Curry, who knew nothing about China, couldn't speak Chinese, had never been to Asia, as his point man on China. And uh, TV song, uh, and Lachlan Curry's first trip to China, TV Song uh, paid him a salary and expenses. So in other words, the China lobby was, had guys on uh, its payroll who were in the Oval Office, were in the Oval Office of President Roosevelt. Tommy Corcoran went, uh, was the biggest lobbyist for what we would later call the military-industrial complex. And again, Tommy Corcoran was on the China lobby payroll, and he actually was running a secret airline uh, out in China that was later called the Flying Tiger. And he was also working for FDR? He quit the uh, Roosevelt administration and was a civilian when he went on the China lobby payroll, but he was very uh, uh, intimate with FDR. Okay, and uh, and a a relative of FDR is a journalist named Joe Alsop. His name comes up as well. Just unbelievable! A, a journalist on the on the payroll of the China lobby, uh, writing uh, positive stories about Chiang Kai Shek. It's just just shocking. But the the goal was to Christianize China, and no matter how bad of a fascist dictator. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek was, his apologist in the United States forgave him because he was going to Christianize China. There was always an excuse, let's just keep supporting this guy, because then China is going to become Americanized, Christianized, and become America's best friend in Asia. Okay, I, I'm going to stop throwing out an endless list of names after two more, because uh, I have to, you bring up, you know, this goal of Christianizing China. Uh, Pearl Buck and the Good Earth, it comes up in U.S high schools as, you know, as great literature. And uh, Time magazine is thought of as uh, objective, viewpoint-free uh, journalism uh, in the United States. What, what do these two items have to do with the China lobby? Pearl Buck and Henry Luce, the founder of Time magazine, this is the number one author of the 1930s, Pearl Buck, the number one publisher of the 1930s, Henry Luce, they were both children of missionaries who had served in China, and they used their power and influence to propagandize for the, the China lobby. I mean, some of the things that you read in the book that Pearl Buck and Henry Luce said and wrote about Chiang Kai-shek and the coming of a Christian China 
are almost laughable. I mean, you you it, it you you can't make this stuff up. But they pro- they were uh, big China lobby propagandists. And and so, what did the China lobby convince the American public and and important uh, powerful people in the United States of? What were the what were the false claims, the myths, the parts of the the mirage? The parts of the mirage were that. You know, this China Mirage started in the 19th century with missionaries writing home. So David Swanson's the local good boy who goes off to China, and David Swanson's parish is is, uh, reading letters from him from China. And he's one of the few people who've ever been to China. And they're hopeful letters talking about the coming Christianization of China. Well, that was the mirage in the American minds in the the pews of, of, of our churches, but out in China, no one wanted to become Christian. Uh, the, 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 uh, the American Christianization effort was failing, always did fail, ultimately failed. But back in the United States, there was light at the end of that tunnel, and, and the dream burned brightly. And this dream uh, uh, got a high-octane kick when Chiang Kai-shek uh, was baptized a Christian. Suddenly, China had Christian leaders, and... And uh, in the 30s, you see Pearl Buck and Henry Luce and many other people promoting the dream. China will become Christian. We must support Chiang Kai-shek. Well, one area of supporting Chiang Kai-shek was to cut Japan's oil to get the Japanese military out of China. The China lobby convinced 75% of the public that this, this was possible without Japan's blowback. This led directly to Pearl Harbor. And, and people who were informed didn't believe that, believed that if you cut off oil and metal to Japan, Japan would attack the United States well, or, or would attack uh, current-day Indonesia. That there would be war, yeah. The, President Roosevelt and Secretary of State Hull said, this is ridiculous. If we, we're supplying 80% of Japan's oil, if we cut that oil, Japan has to go to their other gas pump down in Indonesia, that then was called Dutch East Indies. And if Japan goes to Indonesia, they'll have to go through uh, British and, and French and Dutch holdings, colonies, and there will be war in the Pacific, and the United States will have a war. Roosevelt said, I don't want two wars. I want to fight Hitler. I have a Europe-first policy. We are going to continue to supply Japan with oil. He told this to Winston Churchill. He said, I've got a surefire way to keep peace in the Pacific. What's that? Keep supplying Japan with American oil. They will never attack us if we keep supplying oil. Well, guess what? Roosevelt left town in August of 1941 to go to meet Churchill in Canada in what would later be called the Atlantic Conference. When he was gone, some of these China lobby wise men within his administration surreptitiously cut Japan's oil. David, I didn't know until recently in my life that the President of the United States did not know that Japan's oil was cut for one month. In other words, the number one thing Roosevelt said we should not do in the Pacific was cut Japan's oil. That number one bad thing was done secretly, and Roosevelt didn't know for 30 days. Now, I want to know how you know that, because... 
Roosevelt, we know very well, had access to code-broken secret Japanese communications. Roosevelt, we know very well, had an ambassador and people he was in touch with in Japan. The public discussion in the Japanese media existed. Uh, Roosevelt was capable of knowing it. Roosevelt met with the Japanese ambassador to the United States during that one-month period. How do you know that Roosevelt didn't know anything? He didn't know that the oil was cut. How do you know that? Days. First of all, half of that month he was out of town. He was in Canada, incommunicado. And then when he came back, he did meet with the ambassador who spoke very bad English, very awkward with his, with his English. And apparently, first of all, there's no real answer to your question. I asked myself that too. How come the Japanese didn't... The Japanese just assumed that Roosevelt knew that the oil had been cut off. And as you see in the book, they were, they, you know, who cut Japan's oil? That was a question I had. 1974, I went to school in Japan, and I learned that we cut Japan's oil, and Japan retaliated by hitting Pearl Harbor. But I never knew who cut the oil. Congress? I looked for the answer. No, there was no congressional debate or resolution on this. Executive order? Roosevelt never uh, uh, cut Japan's oil. It was done by Dean Acheson down in the bowels, four levels down from a Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was informed of this on September 5th, one month after Acheson took action, by Secretary of State Hull. You'll see in the book that Hull was surprised, immediately went over to the White House and had lunch with Roosevelt and informed him. So if, if Hull and, uh, finds out after a month goes by and, and immediately informs Roosevelt, and the two of them now know... They don't do a thing about it. They leave it in place, even though Japan has yet to react, uh, and, and sometime thereafter, Japan does react. Why, if they didn't know about it or disapproved of it, why leave it in place? Well, you know, again, uh, the book shows you all these really strange happenings in that August. The, the Secretary of State is very sick and worn down, and he's He's down in West Virginia at a resort. He's out of touch. It's August. There's no air conditioning in back then. Uh, that's the traditional month to take vacations. The president of the United States is not only out of town, he's uh, incommunicado. No one knows where he is. He's up in, in Canada secretly. The assistant secretary of state is under a cloud. He, he propositioned the black porter on a train. Uh, there's a lot of strange little things that happen that August. So a month goes by, Hull, Secretary of State Hull finds out that the oil has been cut. He tells Roosevelt, you've got to look at the politics of this. Seventy-five percent of the country had been calling Roosevelt immoral for continuing to supply Japan uh, oil. Seventy-five percent of Roosevelt's constituents believe that he was in the wrong by supplying oil. Roosevelt finds out the oil's been cut off. Japan hasn't responded. What's Roosevelt to do? Announce that someone uh, in my administration acted without my permission. They did something that I think is dangerous. And now I'm going to reconnect the oil uh, that, you know, I'm going to uh, reconnect the oil spigot to Japan. Why would, would an been, why would there have to be an announcement to undo a policy that nobody knows about, not even the president? Yeah, there would well, have to be an announcement? Okay, you're right. Maybe there wouldn't have to be an announcement. But look at the no polls were taken within the FDR administration, but I'm assuming that that 60, 70, 80 percent of his administration also believed that he should cut the oil. You see in the book that 
many officials tried to cut the oil over a, over a one-year period. And you also see in the book that there were cabinet meetings, rock and roll cabinet meetings, where they argued with Roosevelt over this policy. So he knew his own administration uh, was influenced by the China lobby and thought they could cut oil with uh, no blowback. I just, I just wonder, I, I mean, it's entirely possible, as you say, that, that Roosevelt didn't know for a month, but uh, there's a sort of an implication there, I'm sure, in some readers' minds that he would have disapproved. Uh, and I, I wonder, because Churchill back in, in London has a cabinet meeting at which he discusses uh, how the United States will get into the war in Europe as soon as Japan attacks the United States, and the United States is going to make every effort uh, to create an incident. Uh, the, the U.S. government is coming up with a memo of lists of things that will provoke Japan and acting on every one of them. Uh, extensive evidence uh, down to Henry Stimson's diary and on and on uh, of foreknowledge of the attack on Pearl Harbor. I mean, I wonder, because your book focuses so remarkably well on Asia, it doesn't touch on the fact that Roosevelt wanted a way into the, year, the, the war in Europe, and a Japanese attack was that way. And the Greer incident, as you brought up in, in your writings, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to, to others to speculate on, on those things. I, I, I think you see that historians agree that it was the oil... We were doing we were doing many things, moving our fleet to uh, uh, Hawaii and blah blah blah. But right. it was the the cutoff of oil that focused Japanese leaders. With no oil, they were an industrialized beach whale. No oil, no Japan. That's when they took action. Right, right. Uh, the the other. Uh item that uh, certainly displeased Japan uh, beyond maybe all of the militarization of Hawaii and the Pacific uh, was uh, U.S. planes and pilots and training uh, in China for attacking Japan from the air. Can you, can you talk about how that got going in the 30s through the 40s and, and what was known about it? You know, I quote in the book Alan Armstrong, a lawyer and an author who said, if the American public on Pearl Harbor Day had known of, uh, had discovered Roosevelt's secret air war plans in China, he might have been, uh, uh, what's the word when you kick the president out? <laughs> impeached. impeached. Yeah, it might have been impeached. So, as you see in the book, all through the 30s, Chiang Kai-shek is trying to get an air force, well, uh, to beat Japan. Well, this could never be possible in China because Chiang Kai-shek's military was so horrible that if, if airplanes stung the Japanese, the Japanese army could simply wipe out the air bases. But the China lobby has a direct connect into the White House, and they convince Henry Morgenthau, FDR's best male friend and Secretary of the Treasury, and FDR, that this, air, this crazy airplane dream of uh, Chiang Kai-shek's is possible. And Roosevelt, uh, you know, accedes to this political pressure and gives Chiang Kai-shek some airplanes. Well, this is a secret air force that's being built. Claire Chenault is, is running it. Tommy Corcoran is handling the money. And it's all done off the side. They're sheep-dipping pilots. This is a term that we later uh, use with the CIA but it started with Franklin Roosevelt. 
Roosevelt would take current U.S. Army and Navy airmen, and then they would, quote-unquote, resign. And then they would sign a contract with the Song family company in China and to go out to be advisors, quote-unquote, trainers, and things like that. Actually, they were uh, pilots in the secret air force that Roosevelt was running. This, he put this together one year before Pearl Harbor. And you'll see in the book that the Japanese are complaining about this, and it's, it's really roiling them in Tokyo. Yeah, this is what I don't understand about these things that were secret, including, you know, the treatment of the Jews in Germany, which someone not too long ago went back and looked at all the articles that were in the New York Times. Uh, they were sort of backpaged and underplayed and didn't echo around the echo chamber, but it wasn't as secret as we're led to believe by the history books that leave it out. And similarly, this this was reported. It was reported in the New York Times. It was reported in Japan, and and uh, certainly the U.S. ambassador to uh, Japan uh, knew about the the heated responses in Japan. Uh, I mean, how how secret was it? Well, you know. <laughs> The thing about bombing, yeah, I've been all over Vietnam and Laos and China, and uh, uh, bombing announces itself immediately when a bomb drops, right? So there is no secrecy with bombing. The drone, but look at the drone campaign. I mean, we don't see the victims, and we don't we don't hear the the stories. Everyone in America knows there's a drone there's a drone campaign, but very very few know of its effects. Right, but I see the victims and hear the stories because I go and search for the particular websites uh, and email lists and uh, foreign media outlets that have them. Uh, if I if I worked all day and came down and crashed in front of my TV and uh, soaked in what ABC or CNN had to tell me, then of course no, I wouldn't see the victims. But uh, to say that it's that that the information doesn't exist would be. Uh, would be a bit too far. I, I mean, the, the the not not the bomb not the bombing of Japan, but but the provision of all the airplanes and the pilots and the trainers to China. Uh, it, it seems to me it was reported in the New York Times and knowable to those who sought it out, even though it was after the, the U.S. entry into the war. That, uh, as you describe, Walt Disney designed a, a a logo for the for this Air Corps, and it became a, a celebrated thing. Well, I don't know that the New York Times wrote about us sending uh, Claire Chenault out to China a year before Pearl Harbor. Oh, well, I cited an article in my, in my review that you read. Okay, then I'll have to go back and, and read that, because I, um, I, I cite that the, the Japanese knew that the planes were being delivered. They had spies at the, at the Rangoon dock, but I, I think it's... I think we could agree, David, that the majority of the public, the day that we dropped, that the, the day they found out about Pearl Harbor, uh, didn't say, uh-huh, that's because of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's secret, uh, uh, secret air force out in China and the fact that we cut the oil secretly. Yes, I, I'm. I wasn't alive, but I'm sure you're right. Um, there, it was May twenty fourth, nineteen forty one. The New York Times uh, wrote about numerous fighting and bombing planes going to China, and the the sub headline on the article was "Bombing of Japanese cities is expected." Right. So. Uh, oh. That you know, it just seems to me a lot of times things are 
are knowable if people really hunt for them. But something, you know, we we had a, a few years back a front page story in the New York Times, President Obama going through a list of men, women, and children on Tuesdays and picking which ones to murder with drones. Nobody knows that who doesn't want to know that. I agree. I agree. Uh, so uh, the uh, the remarkable thing about, well, one of the many, many remarkable things uh, about this book uh, is the contrast with your earlier book, uh, The Imperial Cruise, because at one point, Japan was the United States friend uh, about whom all sorts of myths existed. Uh, and not too long later, and a different President Roosevelt uh, China was the American friend, and the Japanese were were back to you know being subhuman foreigners. How how is it that one lobby has such impact over another? Yeah, there's. It seems that in American history, there's a bad Asian and a good Asian out there, uh, out there in uh, Asia. In Teddy Roosevelt's time, it was the Japanese were the good Asians, and the Chinese were the bad Asians. And Teddy Roosevelt agreed with Japan taking over Korea after the Russo-Japanese War. This was the first step of the Japanese military onto the Asian mainland. The problem in World War II in the, in the Pacific was Japanese expansionism into Asia. That expansionism was greenlighted by Teddy Roosevelt in 1905. Now go into the 1930s and 40s, the Japanese had become the bad Asians because they had overstepped their Korean bounds that Teddy Roosevelt had given them, and they expanded into China. And the publicity from the China lobby was about the poor Chinese noble peasants being bombed by those horrible Japanese. The Japanese became the bad Asians. The Chinese became the good Asians who were going to become Christianized. 1949, Mao Zedong arises, and Christian China is is a dream no more so we cut off relations with uh, the country of china as they become the bad asians we had conquered japan who now had to um, obey us and they became the good asians so it's a it's a it's a it's a pendulum swing good asian to bad asian and, and and the Japanese had been isolated and peaceful and culturally flourishing, uh, and had set aside foreign war making uh, for centuries before the United States went in and militarized and imperialized. And now we seem to have come full cycle because the United States government is pushing for not just more military bases in Japan, but for Japan to throw out its peace constitution and, and be willing to make war again. Yes, uh, that is a continuum in American-Japanese history. Japan did what no other Asian country did. They, Japan was small and defenseless and they're on islands. And when Commodore Perry kicked in Japan's door in 1853, the Japanese said, we're going to play the game. We're going to get with it. And they built a military-industrial complex, which no other Asian country did, a military-industrial complex that was uh, funded by American companies. And today, you know, today you really have to ask yourself, like, if you, if you were a leader in Beijing and you looked out at the world, First of all, you'd see yourself surrounded by the American military. Second of all, would you really consider Japan an independent country? I mean, if the United States was occupied by Mexican bases 
from Maine to San Diego, from Seattle to Miami. Uh, and there were Mexican bases all over the country with, who could operate with impunity. And Americans were against this, but even the president of the United States couldn't get the Mexican military out. Would you, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't, we, wouldn't we consider we're an occupied country? I think it is exactly the right question, and I hope that this history in your books is being read in Japan and China, and especially in the United States. I wish we could go on for another hour, uh, but we are out of time. James Bradley is the author of The China Mirage, as well as of The Imperial Cruise and other books that you should go out and get and read them as soon as possible. Uh, James Bradley, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. You're welcome, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.